Hello and welcome to another edition of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is your host, John Chance, and my guest today is Charlene Lee. She is the founder of Altimeter Group and co-author of the critically acclaimed best-selling book, Groundswell. You may recall we had her on uh, when that book came out. She's one of the foremost experts on social media and technologies and uh, was previously a vice president and analyst at Forrester Research. And we're going to talk today about her new book called Open Leadership, How Social Technology Can Transform How You Lead. So, Charlene, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So you left Forrester and started your own company. Maybe tell us a little bit about that before we get too far. Yeah, I left almost two years ago now, in July of 2008. Um, it, I, I left for a number of reasons, partly to do different things, partly to just spend a little bit more time with my family, have better control of my life. <laughs> um, was independent for about a year um, and then said, you know, I, I need to do something else. So I signed a book contract and started a company at the same time, which was, in retrospect, not the smartest thing to do. Um, but being a a business manager now, it's completely different. Yeah. Uh, and I think for a lot of your audience, too, I'm sitting on the other side now worrying about budgets and hiring and marketing and accounting and financing and making a profit. Yeah, and you have um, no no so time for it. no time for meetings anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think my entire life is meetings. That was the result. <laughs> All right, so uh, the, the word... Well, certainly leadership has been around, and now we're pairing sort of this idea of open and transparent and authentic. There's no no question that that maybe uh, would be a Times uh, phrase phrase of the year if they had such a thing. So <laughs> so how do how are you applying that in a way that that is going to be meaningful? Well, I think again in the book, it's it's talking about a time and place now where people, the way we have our relationships with each other, are much more open. And we share a lot more just naturally in our personal lives. And then when it comes to our work lives, it's creating pressure because work tends to be fairly closed. People tend to be fairly secretive. Um, And yet there's this pressure to become much more open and inclusive and participatory, not only with customers, but also with employees and with each other, with other businesses. So there's a need, I think, to be able to create structure around being open, which kind of sounds like a a contradiction, but I think you actually have to think about how you will be open and how open you will be, because you can't be completely open, and at the same time, you can't be completely closed. So what's the right amount of openness? Yeah, because, you know, actually the word authentic, you know, implies that I'm just being me, right? And for a lot of people, being open is not just being me. So, I mean, that probably sets up, I mean, that, that's probably part of the challenge for people. It is. It? And, yeah. and you can be completely authentic all the time and you're not being perceived as authentic. Yeah. So authenticity actually rests in the people you are trying to be authentic to. So you can be honest and forthright, but they don't trust you. It takes time to build that relationship, but authenticity comes from you doing it over and over and over and over again, and they get to believe you that, oh, yeah, this person really does mean that. Now, they I, are sincerely apologetic yeah. about something that went wrong. Yeah, and that, that in many cases, particularly if people have worked in maybe not so healthy environments, the, the, the it's even harder. The bar is even higher, isn't it? So I happen to believe that social technology can transform how you lead, uh, your your, uh, subtitle of the book. But as I read, when you talk about the traits, uh, what it takes uh, in in good leadership, to me, um, I find myself just thinking, well, isn't that that always been the case? I mean, good leaders are just good leaders, and they've had a lot of these qualities. So, um, you know... Why do we need? Why do we need to talk about how social technology is making good leaders good leaders? Because they amplify those good traits. 
and also amplify the bad traits um, exponentially, I would say. So, it, it must, and I think leadership, good leadership is good leadership. Um, yeah. But these new tools, if you don't know how to use them, um, I think you're in a disadvantage because there are ways to extend your leadership. So one of the things I talk about, authenticity and transparency, you can extend those by using these tools and harnessing them. And more importantly, if you're not using them and the people who you are trying to lead are using them, it actually decreases your authenticity and transparency. Um, and, and also talk about you know personal traits like curiosity, humility, and those things, again, can be um, really explored, I think, in a very deep way using these, these technologies. You know, you make a really good point. I think a lot of people think in terms of, say, customer service and marketing, how the social technology has certainly made it easy for you to to do some good things, but it's also made it easy for people that maybe aren't taking care of business to have their brand really kind of, uh, you know, drug through the mud a little bit. And I suppose that that's true of of leaders in a way as well. I mean, the the social technology actually can kind of derail uh, somebody's leadership style, can it? Yeah, it can, it, especially if they don't have a lot of resilience to criticism. Mm-hmm. They don't have that thick skin. And, and I think that's the toughest thing that I talked to people after Groundswell came up. They go, we get it. You know, we got we got to be in these social technologies. But, you know, I don't like this whole idea of negative criticisms or <laughs> being out of control. I mean, can we just do it without those elements? <laughs> like, no, you got to take it all. It's a relationship. Yeah. And that's really hard. I mean, that is a transformational shift they have to make in terms of how they see themselves as being leaders. You talk about cha- the, the how pro- quite possibly entire kind of organizational charts and structures probably uh, are going to have to change for this to to really or, – or maybe they're going to change whether people want them to or not. But, I mean, talk a little bit about that uh, that idea that, that you know, you would, it's not just a different leadership style, but maybe it's a different type of organization. Yes. Um, so one of the things that you have to think about is, is partly how does your organization communicate today? And is it really the most efficient way? Communicate, share information, also make decisions. Um, is that the most efficient way for you to get the goals done? Because the speed is of the essence. Yeah. Um, the information sharing and the decision making that has to take place may not be able to be hopped down anymore because the ability for your frontline people to be able to make decisions, to exercise judgment, becomes so much more important. So, And can you have better control and command over everything with the use of these technologies so that you have really good information sharing from the frontline to the very top throughout the organization? So instead of these hierarchies and flows of command up and down, could you actually have this sort of this loose map of processes um, information that becomes available when people need them. Yeah, it's no more uh, let's tell the boss what we think he or she wants to hear, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> that can't exist anymore. Um, the Does it suggest that you would hire a new kind of person or at least have a new set of filters for looking for somebody who, who can work in an open environment, somebody who's more curious, maybe somebody who's more collaborative? I think you want to highlight those two, um, those skills either find people internally or pe- find people externally. I, I really encourage uh, a lot of the organizations I work with to find the people internally who have that mindset. And I and I do think it's a mindset. Yeah. This is something that's hard to train into people. Um, you can develop the right mindsets, I think, to be open over time, but people kind of come to the table with those mindsets or not. And it's to nurture those people, encourage them, support them, um, and, and really encourage the skills and behaviors that support being open. 
Um, I lay out a lot of those things, which, again, if you're in social media, you live these rules. You, you live that sort of mindset. Um, it's it's hard not to have that optimistic, collaborative mindset and, and be in social media. Do you find that organizations resist this notion, not that because they think it's that they think you're wrong or, or that uh, that this isn't a path, right path to go down, but they've just been burned before and they 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 really have decided that my career as a, I'm a mid-level manager and my career will be uh, will be stalled if if I try to bring in something crazy like this. I think um, it's not so much they've been burned in the past; they've never experienced it. They don't know the benefits. Mm. Um, they're afraid of being burned, and that's why a key chapter in the book is about the failure imperative about how you do have to feel comfortable failing, um, making mistakes, because it is a relationship and things go wrong in relationships. And it, it's, it's the people who have to hang on to the control, make everything perfect all the time, who really have a hard time with social media, because they, they don't have room for that level of sharing and back and forth, and, and all the good that comes with it and all the bad that comes with it, too. So those, tend, those people tend to say, can I get away with not doing this for as long as possible. And they cite examples like Apple Computer Company, I'm sorry, <laughs> Apple Inc. Uh, they say, well, they're not very open. Why can't I do it? They're successful because they're not open. And I said, they're, they're not open because they are successful. <laughs> they don't need to necessarily be as open as some other companies because they don't need it to achieve their goals. So if you like Apple, go for it. <laughs> you know what? Uh, uh, I don't want to get us too far afield here, but... I would suggest that that is that is still going to come back to haunt Apple. Um, because... I I agree with that because yeah. there is only so long that you can create fantastic products. Yeah. When things go wrong, or for example, the fact that they they have this big fight with Adobe Flash right now, they're not getting a lot of love for that. Nope. Because they again, it's mostly Steve Jobs going a bit on a rant yeah. about it, and Adobe comes back saying, "We love you." Yeah. You know, totally disarms them. They they don't have that base of community to support them in that. Well, and I think the closed iPad, iPhone app <laughs> uh, structure, I think, is going to come back to haunt them too when when everybody catches up. But we'll see. I mean, I'm I'm not the first person to suggest that over the last twenty years, am I? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> yeah. So um, I want to go back to this idea of failure. I mean, who rewards people for failing? I'm sorry, say that again? I, I was just going to say, you know, people don't reward people for failure. I mean, we don't have cultures <laughs> in businesses. Yeah, uh, that... and I think that's one of the biggest problems yeah. in that if you can't acknowledge that things go wrong, um, and I lay on the book sort of a structure of, well, understand where the failure comes from and really analyze, you know, instead of just saying your failure bad, first, right. what are the roots of failure? Because people in, in nature aren't bad, but they may be put into a job that doesn't fit skills, or they may not be reliable, they may not be competent, or, may not, or the project may just be wrong. It's none of their fault. Uh, and so I think Google is, is one of the places where I put in, um, and Facebook's another one, where failure is, is really sort of everyday norm. And I think what Facebook is going through right now with the whole privacy issue is something they deal with all the time. Yeah. And they've done so in their history. And I think it's what makes them strong. It makes them push the edge and why they continue to innovate, whereas companies like MySpace, who kind of play it safe, yeah. don't. 
This halftime break is brought to you by Constant Contact. Constant Contact helps small businesses and nonprofits build great customer relationships with email marketing, event marketing, and online surveys. Visit them today at constantcontact.com and sign up for your free 60-day trial. You actually talk about in this, uh, I think it probably sounds counterintuitive, uh, but it makes a ton of sense when you read it. You talk about the, the that openness actually requires more, not less rigor, rigor. I'm sorry, and effort than being right. in control. And and I think probably a lot of people think in terms of okay, we're just going to open it up, we'll see what happens. And I think you're suge- you're suggesting, yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> and I think you're suggesting it's actually more work, or at least maybe needs to be more systematic. Yes, I I think in order to be open successfully, you have to define how open you will be. And I I advocate that companies create what I call sandbox covenants. And these are promises that you make. If you pass power to somebody, allow them to be open, allow them to do things, then they have to take on responsibilities and and keep their end of the bargain. So you can actually define how big that sandbox is, how big that play area is, clearly define what the walls and limitations of how open you will be, and put in a notification of what can take place inside of those walls. So people can just go on with their daily lives and you'll get out of the way so they can do the good things that you want them to do. But you also put out the parameters for saying and the consequences for saying, what happens if you step outside of those walls? And if everybody does this right, okay, maybe you start feeling comfortable with this and you can make the walls bigger. You can make mm-hmm. the sandbox bigger over time. But I think every company needs to define how big that sandbox is for them. Because not doing that says you don't, just don't do anything. And the reality is things happen all the time anyways. And so in the absence of that structure, there's chaos. You, yeah, exactly. And that's where I think people have reined in, you know, said, oh, that didn't work. You know, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> and and I think it's, you're right. It's because there was no, it, it was like, you're going to, you're going to bring in an entire new business strategy and you're not going to put any process around it. Right. Um, so you also talk, and, and I, you know, obviously my audience is, is primarily small business folks. And, and I think that this, the, the, the control word actually haunts I don't care what size you are uh, in business. And you talk about, uh, I think this is a quote uh, directly, I'm not sure if this is directly from the book or if if an interview that I picked this up. You're not in control and probably never really were. You need to let go of the need to be in control. Uh, You aren't really giving up control. You are shifting it to someone else that you have confidence in. And I think that 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 is probably the, 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 biggest disease in small business uh, that that really hampers their ability to grow. So how does one go about experiencing or or trying out this giving up control? It's really hard when you're in a small business because you're used to being the boss. Um, you feel that everything is dependent on you. You have such a responsibility to your employees and to your customers. So it's really hard because if there are mistakes, you're talking about the lifeblood of your company perhaps you know seeping out. So I say take little steps. Because, again, creating that little sandbox, no matter how little it is, find that one area. And you probably are letting go of that control already. Um, it, 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 uh, the example I give of the fact that you're not truly in control is, is when people, for example, if you're in small business and you're in, in retail, what do people say about you on Yelp? You can't control what people say about you on Yelp or what people say in reviews in any sort of business um, medium because they can say whatever they want. And so the only way you can get back in control of that, understand that, is to engage with them. Uh, because you can tell your side of the story, mm-hmm. for example. You can say thank you if they're saying good things about you. 
and that's about developing relationships. I think small business more than anywhere else really understand that relationships are the lifeblood of the organization. So where can you actually say, I can deepen this, these relationships, make them better and work for my business, but in order to do that, I do have to give up some of that control Yeah. to develop it further. So if, if and, and I'm sure they do often, people come to you, to your organization and say, hey, uh, this is great information. Help us get started. What would be a thing or two that, that, that you would suggest is probably a place for just about everybody to get started in if they're going to adopt this? Yes, I, I, I really made the, an effort in the book. At, at the end of every chapter, they have an action plan, an action item for them mm-hmm. to do. So, for example, when I talk about all the different ways it can be open, I line out um, 10 different ways, uh, the elements of openness. But one of the first things you should do is decide, you know, really do an audit, an openness audit, and figure out how open are you. And then figure out what your goals are and say, could openness actually help you achieve those goals better? Now, if Be More Open does, then that's your goal of where you want to be, and that becomes your work plan, getting from here to there about where you need to be more open. The the, the second thing is, is really around measuring it. Yeah. Um, and I do believe you can put numbers against a lot of these things. You can understand the value of being open. I'm not talking about the ROI of Facebook. That's something very different. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about what does more, being more open get you in terms of a deeper relationship and what does that relationship get you in the end? Well, in fact, you I was going to ask you about metrics because you, you uh, have a phrase that I find very interesting, the new customer lifetime value. Mm-hmm. So, so what, what the heck is that? Yeah, well, the, the new <laughs> lifetime customer value takes into account that your traditional lifetime value of a customer, again, is, is typically how much that customer spends with you over their lifetime right. the relationship minus the cost of acquiring and retaining them. But it's more, and that comes out to your LTV, your lifetime value. But it's much more than that because it's not just what they purchase. They also provide value by referrals right. to new customers. And so if you get some customers who are highly influential or they may they may not actually spend that much with you, but because they're so valuable as referrals, they tell everybody about you. I mean, my my husband loves these tempered beds. I think he's sold like twenty of them. Now. <laughs> so we bought one of these things. Right. But the lifetime value of him to the company is tremendous. But they have no idea. They have no idea. Yeah, I um, with social media you can actually track that. Now. Well, I actually talk to people about the lifetime value of a customer really being unlimited, just based on exactly what you just said. Um, do you have an example or two, and I know sometimes you 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 may need to rack your brain for a minute, but do you have an example or two of an organization that, that you have seen that you know maybe needed this, embraced it, and, and really experienced some change that was clearly attributable to, to being more open? Um, so moving the bottom line, basically. Yeah, or, or I mean, could you talk about the idea of implementing some of the stuff, but then measuring it? I mean, our, our, I know you have a number of examples in the book. One, one I, I know that I read with interest is one about Cisco, um, that that you know that really embraced some of this change, needed to, or decided they needed to embrace some of this change, and actually had some um, some success that they could attribute specifically to a different style of leadership. Yeah, um, it, John Chambers in 2001, through the first tech downturn, um, realized that the company couldn't continue the way it was. And he's a classic command and control leader. Mm-hmm. 
So he said, you know, I, we're moving too slow, <laughs> and um, we're going to grow through acquisitions. We're going to grow through growing new businesses and being successful number one players in them. I can't do that if it's just me making these these decisions. So he pushed down decision-making, got people lined up in terms of how decisions needed to be made, what the strategy was going to be, did a tremendous amount of alignment around that. And then, and so, it, it, and then in 2007, started really starting to use these collaborative and social tools to increase information sharing to enable distributed decision making. So, in 2007, only 100 executives were involved in strategic decisions. By the end of 2009, 750 were. And his goal is to get 3,000 executives and, mm-hmm. and managers and directors involved in strategic decision making because they can just move so much faster. So they have all this cost analysis that shows the return on investment for all the collaboration and social things that they do. But then he built off what they had accomplished in 45 days, four major acquisitions, a quarterly earnings call, two major partner summits, a $500 million um, debt offering, 125 customer calls that John Chambers personally, personally did in 45 mm. days. Wow. And then he kind of smiles at me and goes, and I'm working less than I did two years ago. <laughs> and, and that's right. The man is absolutely right. He is able to lead the organization, and he's in total command of what's happening at Cisco, but he doesn't control it. He you didn't know, decide that those were the right acquisition targets to go through. He had a whole team of people who were the experts on that. You know, it's interesting. I don't hear enough people talking about social tools to use internally, and, and maybe it's because I, I really focus primarily on marketing, and so people talk about them as, you know, lead generation and conversion tools, but uh, but but this idea of using social networking tools in, internally, I think, is one that probably doesn't get talked about enough. Yeah, it, there's a whole group of people thinking about Enterprise 2.0 and collaboration software, and I think that's sort of the hidden story because it's not as visible. Yeah. But I think, again, in small businesses, how can you use this to develop a better relationships and information sharing and decision-making in particular so that you don't have to be the... Um, basically the choke point yeah. for everything. If more and more people can get better information, the same information that you have, especially about customers, and they can make the decisions at the front lines, that's going to make you a much more efficient organization. And you will work less as a business owner or marketing manager because there will be more people who are capable. Well, and I think if you have any vision of selling your business as a small business, you better get that choke point <laughs> solved because if you can't have other people making the decisions that are growing the business, that are bringing in new business, that, that is creating innovation, you know, then it, you're, you're going to have a much less sellable business, I think. Exactly. So um, the book can be found certainly anywhere they sell books uh, do you have uh, a, a site that you'd like to share that has some extra content uh, yes it does we have tons of resources on the site reviews and um again a lot of things in the site on, on, in the book action plans social media policy directory things like that are on the site at open-leadership.com couldn't get the non-dash version huh now it's actually easier to read. <laughs> yeah, actually, you're right, and I don't think the search engines care either. So, um, so yeah. that part you got. Well, Charlene, thanks for joining me. I know you're uh, keeping awfully busy, and uh, I appreciate you uh, sharing this information. Great read, and uh, hopefully we'll do it again soon. Hey, thanks, John. Take care.